there is significance in articulating anger, not just by individuals, but also by the community of East Asian women, because it's a, a crucial part of how we can come together as a repressed collective and it's an essential part of the political action. When people try to explain their own feelings, they will be dragged into the never-ending conversation of the intentions of the perpetrators, rather than how we acknowledge the victim's feeling, how we can educate people, and how we can let it go and move forward. To recognize that as racial minorities, we're all in this together. So when we stand in solidarity with one another, can we achieve social justice? This is Undersong, and today we will talk about anti-Asian racism with Ken Tao, Dr. Nini Fang, and Dr. Sarah Liu. My name is Katusha Bento, and I welcome all listeners to Undersong, Race and Conversations Otherwise. Undersong represents a commitment to amplifying this space for listening to what gets too easily buried, erased, or forgotten. In listening to the uncomfortable legacies of empire and coloniality that shape the present, this podcast serves as a local and global platform to exchange critical thought around race and the making of worlds otherwise. This podcast emerges of Race Ed, a cross-university network concerned with race, racialization and decolonial studies from a multidisciplinary perspective. Undersong, the Race Head podcast, is alternatively hosted by Shaira Vadasaira, Nazar Mir, and myself, Katusha Bento. It receives curatorial and technical support by the star Sophia Hoffinger and the School of Social and Political Sciences at the University of Edinburgh. I will present our speakers today, Ken Tao, Nini Fang, and Shaira Liu. Ken Tao is a PhD researcher in sociology at the University of Edinburgh. Her research focuses on the everyday nationalism in Chinese high schools. She initiated the solidarity protests last December outside the main library at the University of Edinburgh, which she will give us a little bit more context in this conversation. After this demonstration, she joined the movement Racism Unmasked Edinburgh uh, with an administrative role. Racism Unmasked Edinburgh is a movement to combat racism towards East Asian and Southeast Asian in Edinburgh, especially during the pandemic. It aims to create a safe space for the community, educate allies and potentially push for greater policy changes. Hello, Ken. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. Hi, Katusha. Hi, everyone. Thank you for having me here. And now presenting Dr. Nini Fang uh, is a lecturer in counseling and psychotherapy at the University of Edinburgh. Her work foregrounds lived experiences examining how the social political bears upon the personal subjective. Her teaching pushes for a more politically sensitive curriculum that addresses social inequality in the consulting room. She's a scholar of the British Psychoanalytic Council. She sits on the executive board for the Association for Psycho Psychological Studies, the editorial board for the new associations, the British Psychoanalytic Council. 
She's also the Associate Director for the Centre of Creative Relational Inquiry at the University of Edinburgh. Hello, Nini. How are you? Thank you for being here with us today. Hi, everyone. Hi, Katusha. Nice to join you. Thanks for having me. Dr. Sarah Liu is a lecturer in Gender and Politics in the School of Social and Political Science at the University of Edinburgh. Her research and teaching focus on the cross-national comparison of how contexts namely women's political representation, social movements and immigration in the media shape the gender gaps in political opinion and behavior. She has published widely in academic journals and has been featured in, in multiple international media and also appears regularly on BBC Radio's London and Scotland. Sarah is the co-founder and chair of the Staff BAME Network at the University of Edinburgh and sits on various equality, diversity and inclusion task forces, both within and outside the university. Thank you for participating in this dialogue. Thank you, Sarah, for being here. Thanks for having me. What an honor and privilege to be here. <laughs> it's great to be with the three of you. So I would like to ask a few questions and invite you all to jump in at any point with questions, comments or interventions that you feel important to contribute in our exchange. But uh, before uh, we start this, I would like to uh, tell our listeners that we are recording this episode in May 2021, which means that we are bringing reflections and experiences regarding the anti-Asian racism during a particular context. In this conversation, we will talk about the intersections that race has with gender, nationality and other relevant aspects that are particularly harmful, especially during the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, one year after the beginning of the lockdown in the UK context, and so many narratives that helped negative stereotypes and preconceptions crystallized in anti-Asian racism, we are here to talk about the nuances of how East Asians and Southeast Asians are experiencing such oppressions. This uh, is the alert not to universalize identities or experiences with careful attention to break from the hegemonic homogenizing tone embedded and embodied in anti-Asian racism. In that sense, I hope we disrupt those narratives, invoke our feminist and critical race understandings to dismantle the discourse and weave possibilities to anti-racist solidarity. So to give us a more profound sense of context, I would like to invite Ken to tell us about the protest in December in front of the main university library of the University of Edinburgh. It was a timely call for visibility and deeper conversation regarding racist attacks that have been happening in the UK. So tell us a little bit about what was happening at that time and what was the setting to urge this call. Yeah. Thank you. So it all started as a quick response to the racist incident in uh, December last year outside the Edinburgh University main library, where like an Asian student were attacked by a group of teenagers like outside, like right outside the, the library. And um, the victim of this attack shared his experience in the Meadowshare Facebook group and uh, I read his story from there and a lot of people were so shocked and angry 
and there were so many people saying things like, "Oh my God, it's horrible! I'm so sorry to hear that," etc. But as an East Asian myself, I I don't think this is this kind of conversation is enough, and、uh, I never felt this unsafe before. I've stayed in Edinburgh as an international student for like six years, and uh, th- th- this incident really made me feel different from what I experienced before. So, I think people really need support from each other, and、um, we really need the solidarity from the community. And personally, I really miss the time when we walk in George Square with our friends. And sometimes I finish studying at 2 a.m. Then I can still like feel confident to walk alone in George Square. And、uh, I don't think it's going to happen anymore. So、uh, I came up with this idea of a solidarity walk to reclaim the space and also show some tangible support to each other. So I. I came out with the idea of holding your phone torchlight, and、uh, because that was winter, so it, it was dark at like 6 p.m. or something. Then at the same time,、um, Ali and Faya, the co-founders of Racism Unmasked, found the Racism Unmasked Facebook page, and、uh, I posed my idea of this solidarity walk into the group, and、uh, they approached me and they helped me organize the event. So due to the lockdown rules, we Cannot march, so we end up with the this stationary protest outside the library, and we mark the space, and we also print out a lot of、uh, poster.、Uh, the university buildings are really nice. We contact the people; they say we can leave our like poster there for a few days, and、uh, it was a surprise to us because we organized the whole event in like about three days, and、uh, at the end, almost two hundred people showed up. And、um, we were very much encouraged by the success of this、uh, main library protest. A lot of people gave speech, and、uh, we also got support from other organizations and、uh, Black Lives Matter、uh, movements as well. Like we didn't even approach them. Like they saw our advertisements online, and they hear it from other people. And they some people travel from Glasgow to to Edinburgh to support us. So like, yeah, it was really a success. But at the same time, it shows how. How much we need this kind of thing for our community, and how much,、uh, how many people are willing to support and stand together with us? Yeah. So after the protest, we think、um, we want to go forward, and、uh, we want to do more for the、uh, community. And、uh, since then, we were carefully monitor our Facebook page, and it has already became a safe space. I'm confident to say that for people to share their experience. Or to share learning resources and discuss issues with a lot of respect to each other, and、uh, we also set up an anonymous support page so people who experience personal like、uh, issues in workspace, in family space,、uh, study space, they can like anonymously just message us. Then we can、uh, advise them.、Uh, we can at least we can confirm their feelings. And、uh, we also share、uh, resources. We're we're also trying to develop that page at this at this moment. And、um, in our Instagram account, we share infographs on topics like how to be active bystanders,、uh, mental health issues during the pandemic, the problem of the word Oriental, and、uh, the difference between being racist and、uh, being called racist. And a lot of them has been shared by members of the community, and、uh, they're being used to educate allies. Overall, we see a lot of problems and、um, about the 
kind of culture in Edinburgh regarding the issue of race. And um, many people still feel they're entitled to make other people uncomfortable. And uh, it is it is difficult to say, but like it's simply there is still an issue of empathy and understanding. And uh, people generally prioritize what they mean over what the victim feel. Then the, the result of this kind of uh, thoughts is when we try to call out things, the people are not focusing on the problem of the issue. They focus on justifying themselves, throwing like so-called facts at us. And um, they, they try to say, oh, I don't have a bad intention or something like that. This kind of like just they, they just silence the, the victims. And this is indeed a, a vicious cycle. So on the on the victim side, when like people try to explain their own feelings, they will be dragged into the never ending conversation of the intentions of the perpetrators, rather than how we acknowledge the victim's feeling, how we can educate people and how we can let it go and move forward. So our work really want to break that. That's a beautiful outcome from a such a, a sad, violent uh, situation. Uh, it was violent, it was a physical violence against that student in particular, but it, it was something that was going on for a long time. So um, I am very happy to know how this uh, became something so fruitful uh, to build community, a sense of community and spaces where you can, you can negotiate language, right? But yeah. also drawing from different communities this solidarity to discuss anti-racist practices. Because the nuances of, you know, anti-black racism or anti-Asian racism uh, need to be seen from their own experiences. And it's so amazing that you are doing that, validating the experiences of the other. Um, it is very important to, to have that. As a black woman, I say this because sometimes when we suffer some kind of sexual assault or, or racist uh, comments, people, are you sure it wasn't just a joke? And they uh, invalidate your experience and what you felt. And having these spaces like you were talking about, Ken, uh, to share this experience and just having someone to validate that and say, I'm sorry that happened to you. This is a big deal and I think it affects us as human beings, but also as a community, uh, more uh, and I feel really strong about about the importance of this. So thank you for sharing this experience. And I wanted to to explore a little bit more about the the importance of saying out loud what happened, sharing what happened, and stand up against racism. So at some point, Sarah, you um, in the in the article you published with Nini uh, called Critical Conversations, Being Yellow Women in Time of COVID-19, which is a fabulous article. I, sh I, I invite all the listeners to, to give a read because it's, it's really inspiring. In that article, you mentioned that you feel more vocal uh, regarding the aspects that, uh, of, of racism that you, you were seeing and also you experienced, right? Um, my question is, what are the aspects that inspire you to voice your truth, considering that we so often encounter 
those counter narratives that are so oppressive and even more harmful when we, we try to dismantle or denounce such experiences. Thank you, Katucha. Um, that's a really great question. Um, so to clarify, I don't know if I feel more vocal um, since the beginning of pandemic, but I definitely do feel more of a need to be vocal. And in a way, ironically, in a way, I feel um, more liberated to be vo vocal. So um, even before the pandemic, I, I was always an activist. I was always vocal. I was always an activist. But before the pandemic, I was a little more, perhaps a little more cautious about openly criticizing those in power. Um, for example, the government um, policies or the higher education sector as an institution in general, right? So even though I was an activist before the pandemic, but I was still somewhat reserved and openly criticizing um, these um, 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 institutions that are in power. Um, perhaps it's because of my Asian culture, right? And I don't want to say it in a stereotypical way because I don't mean to generalize um, Asian culture, but at least in my own upbringing, right? It's um, a lot of the times, um, you know, um, um, those around me would say things like, because, I mean, to give you a little background, right, I'm an immigrant in the United States, so I grew up there always as, as an outsider, right? So one of the very common ways for immigrants to, I guess, for the lack of a better word, to assimilate or to be accepted by the mainstream um, society is to not cause any controversy, not cause any confrontation, right? So we don't want to stand out, right? So in a way, perhaps because of my upbringing, it's always like, okay, you shouldn't, you know, cause any confrontations, even you though if you think you have like a lot of things to say. And that my own personal experiences, um, I think are um, kind of like echoed in the Netflix movie, Moxie. I don't know if any of you has watched it, but it's, it's kind of interesting. I mean, I have mixed feelings about it, but in the movie in particular, there was this Asian girl who kind of like refused to participate in the um, in the movement that this white woman started, right? This feminist movement yeah. that this white woman started. And it was because her um, she never really spoke about why, but later as we watch the film, we learned that it's because her Asian parent is like, we're immigrants here. We work so hard to you know put you through school, blah, 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 blah. This is because we want to give you a better life, right? So, I think it's important when we think about a certain set of um, population, perhaps not being as vocal as they should be. As we talk about that, I think we need to also think about the context, right? What prevents people from being vocal? What prevents people from being um, from feeling the freedom and the autonomy to speak up, right? So I think partly it's because of that that I was always somewhat reserved, even though I was always an activist. And also in the UK. I think perhaps it's because of my somewhat precarious, more precarious position, right? I'm a migrant woman working in the UK, you know, so there's, um, it involves my visa status, my um, immigration status, right? So I think these um, particular factors have shaped how I have chosen to perhaps be more quiet on the truth front, right? But since the beginning of the pandemic, right, I think it's not just me, I think I'm pretty sure most of us have thought about life and death. Right. So there definitely have been times, especially in the beginning of the pandemic, when I feel like, oh, who knows, I might get COVID one day and I may die tomorrow. So to me, it's kind of like, well, fuck it. I'm going to speak my truth. Right. So, Sophia, feel free to edit it out if you don't want swearing on here. But I do think swearing no. is important because oftentimes it's like, how else can you express your anger besides swearing? Right. But anyway, so to me, I feel like COVID has really changed my outlook on life. Right. If I unfortunately leave the world one day because of COVID, would I regret for not speaking the truth because I'm not 
I'm so interested in protecting my own self-interest, right? So that's sort of like how my mentality has worked and changed um, since COVID. I need to say that this narrative gave me a lot of goosebumps uh, when you were saying, you know, we have to be preoccupied about our visa situation. We have to be worried about so many things. And it is is it, it is true that uh, even the, the cultural um, aspects that are part of our, uh, our experiences, our worldview, and I believe that making sense of all this and then speak up and then well I'm not going to I'm not going to commit to any of those material aspects because I need to there are things that I need to say I need to I think it's the path of liberation for us to go and voice our truths right um, yeah. what do you think or hmm I will frame this way what kind of labor does this voicing your truth entail for you in your everyday and I say this in terms of for me the emotional labor sometimes is hand in hand with my spiritual practices and spiritual labor so I have many aspects that uh, I try to to be aware of when I'm doing this labor intentionally to voice my truth uh, because I want to protect myself, not necessarily because of the visa, but because of my well-being. So this is a negotiation, right? Uh, so for you, how? What is the, the the kind of labor that entails uh, speaking your truth and in a in everyday basis, not necessarily only academia? Um, I think you're absolutely right in saying that a lot of um, not just physical labor, right, but also emotional labor and mental labor that goes into it, right? So I think in a way, um, you know, like, even though I've talked about how, you know, the pandemic has changed my life, I feel, you know, more free to speak the truth. But I'm still in somewhat a, um, even though I'm in a precarious position for various reasons or for various identities I have, but at the same time, I'm also in a more um, secure position than a lot of people, other people are, right? So for example, I hold a permanent position within the university. I have a passed my probation. Um, I don't have any family or kids, so I don't necessarily have to worry about income, right? So I think it's paying attention to those um, various positions that we are in that allow me to think about, okay, what can I do, right? What sort of anti-racist efforts I could put in? Um, and I, I'm a little hesitant um, to think about anti-racist efforts from, on the individual level because I'm very wary about how a lot of people expect us, right? The racially minoritized people or, or women or, you know, women of color to, to take a lean in approach, right? Because a lot of times the onus is put on us to say, well, okay, there's racism out there, but what are you gonna do? You're the one suffering from it. You should do something about it, right? So I'm, I'm a little hesitant to, to take a lean in approach. However, I do think it is up to us. It depends on all of us who worked collectively to recognize that oppression is not a competition, right? Um, to recognize that as racial minorities, we're all in this together. So when we stand in solidarity with one another, can we achieve social justice, right? And I think what um, Can said earlier about her own experiences um, mobilizing, um, I think Can earlier, you said that, you know, like uh, the Black Lives Matter people like showed up and helped and they were also on the front line, you know, at the demonstration, right? That really touches me because I think only when we recognize that black bodies are suffering 
as well as the as well as the Asians that are suffering from the Atlantic shooting and you know and, and you know um, other forms of racist um, attacks because of um, COVID nineteen, can we really um, fight the system? All right, uh, thank you for for this beautiful answer. And yeah, I believe how we how we connect with each other, understanding that it's we are not trying. And to our listeners, and I know that. Um, some of my students will listen to this. Uh, I repeat all the time, we are not doing an exercise here to put everyone on the same experience as if everyone experienced racism in the same way. What we're doing here is understanding how these experiences can bridge the solidarity together. Just to, to make sure that um, well, this is a question that it often appears, so I, I wanted to highlight this and highlight the effects of of racism. And I wanted to to shift and ask Nini how, in in relation to this toxic effects of racism that we are discussing now, um, and whiteness in 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 a particular way um, that is affecting our bodies psychologically, physically, as we mentioned before, right? Um, how do you deploy the efforts to create anti-racist practice in the academic or even the non-academic uh, spaces? Hi, Katucha. Thank you very much for asking me that brilliant question. Um, I just want to say that I quite uh, wanted to reply to Sarah on a point that she raised about anger. And I just wonder yeah, if sure. say something to that before I uh, try and respond to your question. Jump in. I, I have to come back to these because I completely agree that this is the time for us to get angry. And I completely believe in the potential in anger in our collective effort to reclaim yellowness. For me, there is significance in uh, articulating anger, not just by individuals, but also by the community of East Asian women, because it's a, a crucial part of how we can come together as a repressed collective and is an essential part of the political action. I have recently um, worked on a paper on the racial oppression of yellow women, and the paper is called uh, the aggressive potential and the yellow anger. Uh, the, the paper is coming out in psychoanalysis, culture and society. So I, I talked a lot about what's been going on in terms of racial oppression of yellow women and how anger is much uh, a necessity for us to enable to mobilize some change. So I, I think that um, I want to really address on the theme of how or why anger is necessary in terms of bursting the, the bubble of uh, why fantasy that uh, yellow woman should exist and remain as an object, not as a person, as an object who is devoid of her own personal agency and voice. Uh, I will talk a bit about historicity of the racial racialization of East Asian women, but I want to really talk about how anger has 
uh, is a particularly powerful effect in bursting that white bubble that we should be treated as uh, as an object and we should be uh, complacent or, or content with that. So I think that voicing our anger collectively is the way to disrupt the racial imagination of East Asian women. And I particularly highlight uh, in my paper that um, anger, when it's expressed or acted upon by yellow women, has the potential to disrupt the status quo of social relations that tend to put the yellow woman in her place. I also argue for the political value of anger that it can provoke the sense of necessity in the yellow woman to push back against the institutional, environmental and historical malaise that threatened to disavow her separate personhood in favour of what you were talking about, um, Katucha, in terms of the homogeneous control of East Asian women as lifeless, voiceless, collectible object. There's something interesting here, um, which is that um, we all know how, for example, black women or brown women tend to be seen as angry, aggressive and ruthless uh, by the white standard, but not yellow women. So I think there's something going on here in and how that says something about how we are dealing is as East Asian women we are dealing with a form of exceptionalism that is so problematic that we are not only racialized and oppressed but our suffering is not even heard it doesn't even registered that it's been silenced to the degree and marginalized to the degree that it's just not seen as real anger is not registered aggression doesn't it doesn't somehow get registered in the same extent and as what and can was saying the issue of empathy I speak as a counselor psychotherapist, right? And how can we show empathy to people when we don't see them as real? Do you show empathy to your vase? Do you show empathy to your bathtub? You don't because you don't see them as suffering. You don't see their pain as real. So there's something seriously going on here in terms of how East Asian women have been objectified and by objectification, I mean depersonification, depersonalized, seen as not real. So anger for me is a very powerful way to smash that dull imagery about the East Asian woman. And it's such a powerful way to give voice to the suffering, to say enough is enough. We can't take anymore. Look at what's going on around us, that our pain, suffering, the communities and, and what, what's been going on can no longer be neglected or treated as non-existent. So I just wanted to chime in too, um, based on what Nini said, right, about the invisibility of, of um, East Asians community. And I think a lot of it has a lot to do with this myth of model minority, right? So um, East Asians are seen as a, the, the model minorities in which, you know, they, they do well in school, they get good jobs, they're well educated, you know, um, they're good citizens of the of, of, of a community, right? But the negative side of that is that people don't really see the fact that um, East Asians also experience um, racism, for example, right? Because, you know, you are so successful. How can you struggle, right? So I think it's also up to us to um, collectively um, smash that stereotype that East Asians are the model minority, um, because only then can we really see the suffering that people and the struggles that people go through. 
yeah, I, I totally agree. And uh, I want to comment on the being vocal and uh, the labor of uh, the emotional or other labor of anti-racism work and also the anger Nini talk about. So like, I've been doing this kind of activism, uh, activist work for almost half a year. And um, I think now I reflect back on our work. I think there is a lack of tools. So I feel there is lack of um, conceptual theoretical tools and there is also lack of resources, lack of space for us to, to, to do this kind of work. So I think when I read Nini and Sarah's uh, article of, about yellow women, I feel like this is, this is a tool. This is something I'm looking for because like when I was in undergraduate third year, that's the first time I list, uh, like, like I study about uh, black feminist epistemology. Then I think about myself, what is my epistemology? Who am I even? Like when I when I learn things in, in the UK, like after I realize there is a lot of Orientalism, colonialism inside, I feel this is not my thing. And uh, I'm also not the traditional uh, East Asian or Chinese Confucianism. Like I don't 100% fit that as well. So like when I see the term like yellow women, I feel like, Oh, this is this might be something I'm looking for. Like th this this can be something like we can explore on like what what kind of epistemology, what kind of thoughts, how 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 the way we raised uh, the our family, our personal experience, our identity influence how we see the world, how we think something is important, and how 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 we decide on our like even research interests. So I feel like I. Yeah, I, I feel that 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 is very necessary, and uh, I think we also need to explore on more more tools. And being angry is also a tool for us to practically to like be angry can push you to do things. Like in real life, it's not only think about it and uh, dismiss it or like just complain about it online or something. Like being angry, real anger can make you to step out of your bedroom and do things and to to do things with people also the black Lives matter and um, like previous work on on like intersectionality the, this or the these are all tools that helped um, like east and southeast asian people to like that help us to reach today's um stop Asian hate campaign around the world, I think. So like, if there is no BLM, our campaign today will not be that easy, I guess. And uh, yeah, so we we also take, take those tools from other people and uh, we stand together with them. And I feel like it's really important to recognize that. Yeah, and I feel one of the, the thing I'm thinking like in everyday work is, um, what what kind of tool am I going to invent or am I going to 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 create to help other people? Like our infographs on on the Instagram are used by people to like throw into the face of like uh, racist people. So like they, they can just like see read this. So I don't have to explain things to you. So I can save my emotional labor. And I think that's the tool as well. So yeah, I just want to comment on this. Yeah, you said it. It's it's beautiful and powerful as well. I think you touched you the three of you touched something uh, so relevant, which is what is our positionality in relation to 
this, not only the, the topic that historically we've been talking about, and I believe it's embedded in colonial legacy, in patriarchy and so on, and whiteness, but um, a positionality that enables us to do what Audre Lorde taught us how to do, the uses of anger. The uses of anger are powerful. They, they promote social change and transformation. They help us through the path of liberation in a point that is completely released from that romantic view from the women's role, but it is at the core of our truth uh, where we actually feel stuff. We don't, we're not like all bubbly and heart shapes kind of uh, people. And uh, I would like to explore this positionality a little bit more and push towards uh, this epistemological turn that we are facing, like the urgency to discuss things from a different perspective, right? And having this uh, in a context that it's interesting, interesting time for our listeners. I don't know if there will be someone listening to this in 10 years time, but right now this year, not only the pandemic, not only the anti-Asian uh, racism and anti-Black racism that created so many interesting movements around the world, but we are facing a moment in which critical race studies has been um, not only criticized, but uh, but put in a invalidated position in the UK Parliament um, and at the institutional level from the government. Uh, so it is actually an urgent moment to be discussing our positionality in this moment, in the in the context of pushing away from this critique of critical race studies uh, and bringing together new views of how our feminism is able to create new epistemologies, new movements, new solidarity. So now, Nini, in relation to the toxic effects of whiteness in our bodies, I mean, psychologically, physically, or even spiritually to some people, uh, how do you deploy efforts to create anti-racist practice in the academic and also in the non-academic spaces? Thank you, Katyucha. And I do think it's a brilliant question around the toxic effect of whiteness. And this question is particularly close to heart as someone who's from a therapeutic background was quite interested in how the political, social, cultural problematics seep into the subjective, the personal and how we relate. So I really want to respond to this question. Um, but to talk about the toxic effect of whiteness, I want to first introduce the audience to the specific racialization of yellow woman which is um, essentially around the issues of uh, objectification and sexualization, essentially how she's reduced to a human thing, a something rather than someone that can and should be used to generate good feelings. And the truth is a lot of people see East Asian women as docile, as doll-like, object-like, but they don't necessarily know 
where that even came from. So I want to first say that this is really where race becomes highly uh, intersected with sex and how that generates a very powerful dynamite of intersectional oppression of yellow women who historically uh, have already occupied the subordinate oppressed position in the eastern states, which are mainly androcentric, so male dominated. I want to highlight a particular historical incident here, which is the Doe Exchange Program, which took place in 1927. Essentially, this is a diplomatic mission which occurred before World War II, where military tension was intensifying between the West and the East, East being the rise of Japan. In conspiring with the Western states in making military advancement in China, Japan sent no less than 13,000 Japanese Ijimazu dolls to the United States as a gesture to make peace and build alliance with the West. The kimono-wearing, childlike, expressionless, cute Ijimazu doll has since then been conflated with the imagery of yellow woman as submissive, silent, and concealed. This event is significant in the sense that, as we see here, how the conception of East or Eastern femininity became associated with the peace offering as a token of exchange to appease male conflicts and aggressions. In the aftermath of the Doe Exchange Program, the yellow womanhood became reconstructed through the racial grammar of commodity aesthetics, which has become the dominant cultural symbol of the East Asian woman, in the sense that her true selves are best hidden, best covered up, lost, whose beauty lies in her being fragile or being demure. And as a doll-like thing, her personhood does not matter as much as her thingness, which is to say that her sole purpose lies in her being used as an object, an object of adoration and for comfort, which is the effective labor that uh, we have been talking about. Just like the purpose that the doll figure was supposed to serve, she now is reduced to an object of peace offering. And this is a very interesting incident because we don't see why women being reduced to the doll imagery or being objectified to the same extent uh, that East Asian women um, had to suffer. So here, the effect of racialization are highly asymmetrical that you just don't see you know, East Asian men relate to white women the same way that white men relate to East um, Asian women. But racism is not just the product of history. It is created to serve a purpose. I agree with what Robin D'Angelo says, that racism doesn't need to be rational. It just needs to work. So the objectification here works to ensure that the yellow woman is not treated as a real person, as a real human being. She might be valued, but this is based on the commodity aesthetics, that the issue here is that she's only valued in so far as she adheres to 
what she represents by suppressing who she really is, who she can be at the cost of what really matters to her. And uh, Candy talks about the issue of empathy and I address um, this particular point early on. So Sarah has mentioned the issue with a model minority and I think that trope is highly problematic um, as she already discussed. So I don't want to talk more about it, but rather than focusing on the question you ask about the toxic effect of whiteness, for me, it doesn't, they don't just exist in the cultural symbolic spheres, but they tend to materialize into the lived realities and produce real suffering and real struggles as lived, as felt, and as experienced by the yellow woman themselves. To answer your question, Katucha, the toxic effect here is that the racial oppression and the way that we as East Asian women are being related to can be internalized as part of how we then evaluate ourselves, how we see ourselves, how we interpret experiences of our social relations with others. So, for example, in my paper with Sarah, our Critical Conversations paper, I talked about being silenced at a webinar um, as a result of white people not being used to hearing a yellow woman speak in the public intellectual forum. However, I want to really say that when it happened to me at the time, I genuinely thought that it was my problem to be the first to speak to take too long um, as the thing that they accused me of. So we, we could genuinely internalize the racist values that um, as a yellow woman, we are not supposed to have an opinion. We are not supposed to be the first to speak. We're not supposed to speak with passion. For example, you are supposed to be an object. You're supposed to be sitting there smiling, silently, nodding and full of agreements. So, of course, this is, as we know, effective labor. And it's this, the, the issue with effective labor is that it's generally assigned to East Asian women if you pay attention to cross-racial interaction, particularly when white men are around, who gets to, to speak, who gets to be listened to, who gets to be sitting there and smiling in, in silence. So the truth is, there are still many times when I face racist prejudices against me in terms of being dismissed, being sidelined, being put down, being put in my place. And I know I will still have that immediate reaction of thinking there must be something wrong with me. There must be something inadequate about me. And this self-blaming is a very common issue with um, racism against women of color. A book uh, I recently finished by Ruby Hamad. Um, the book is called White um, Scars, Brown Tears. And um, so it's, it's a brilliant book. And she talks about the kind of self-blaming um, by um, women of color very, very well. So I just really want to bring your attention to this very, very book. And I think it's a quite an interesting one. So how do we create anti-racist practice in and outside academia? I think that as we've been talking about, this should not be an individual effort, but a collective one. How do we resist performing to or colluding to the racial stereotypes that's so problematic? How do we form a repressed collective with other East Asian women? How do we build solidarity with other 
racialized groups, as Ken and Sarah were talking about, in order to maximize that political synergy to mobilize political activism, we need to make our suffering known. We need to shout out. We need to, as what Sarah said, we need to be vocal about it. We need to take action. And we are, as a matter of fact, being targeted, being attacked and being murdered. We cannot do this on our own. And we, it requires more than individual effort. Thank you for this beautiful presentation and putting together the historical aspects uh, of this at the same time that you shared your your experience and I think speaking with passion and speaking from the heart is actually something quite powerful. Uh, thank you for sharing. Uh, yeah, and I believe that the, the building community, as you was as you mentioned, we cannot do uh, everything by ourselves. This change that we want needs to be collective. Um, I would like to invite you all to speak a little bit, like Ken already uh, presented the, the the project that she, well, the movement uh, that she's engaged in Racism Unmasked Edinburgh. Is there any, any project, whether it is in academia or outside academia, you are involved in a more uh, focused uh, way in regards to anti-racism? Mm, I think since we became sort of famous on social media, a lot of different people and stakeholders have approached us. And uh, we also had um, tried to to interact with like police of Scotland and the university. And uh, we've sometimes so, like like it's, it's, it's good to uh, receive attention, but like people also see us as a as a very strong like uh, organization, but we're not that yet. And um, from the experience of interacting with institutions, I feel sometimes quite powerless because they as institutions, they want evidence and facts and statistics from us. We're just a group of angry and um, uh, not insecure. I don't want to say that, but like we're just like we're, we're just doing voluntary work because of our personal experience and uh, our like care for each other. And uh, when we brave enough and form a little group, and when we try to approach the institutions, they 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 give us their hand to ask for things from us, and uh, we have no resource. We do we do all of this work for free, and uh, there is a lot of emotional labor and uh, time behind it, and we don't have the resource to do research across Scotland or something like that. We can't present them the evidence they want uh, so they can make like immediate policy change and another thing is they're like they always sound very nice they're willing to talk about it they're willing to address the issue but sometimes it, it's it, it feels tiring because we keep asking ourselves how much does it take to make them to change like how much awareness, what kind of thing do we really need to do or show them so they can just, okay, we're going to deal with it. We're going to, we're, we're going to hire uh, like uh, East Asian, Southeast Asian counselors to help our students or we're really going to address that the students is not only living in the campus, they're also living outside the campus. So we also need to care about their 
experience outside uh, George Square, right? And um, but at the at the same time, there is a lot of other effort. So all of these kind of um, grassroots students, uh, teachers, immigrants, like we 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 have a lot of organizations, and I think. I think we already start to make a change to things, and um, we already want to speak out what we want to say and uh, raise awareness. And we also attract like celebrities. Like recently, I think a few uh, Asian celebrities they set up a, a, a fund or something. I didn't follow that because I was on the on the plane, but like I heard from it uh, from from other members of the group, and they they're able to. Like raise money, attract attention, and um, also help us and help uh, to repay the the community as well. So like, although it's not a simple work to do, but I still have faith and I'm still have like the the braveness inside me to to do more work and to yeah to to share my experience. So Ken, I totally understand your frustration, and I think you know it's totally. It's perfectly normal to feel that way, right? Because the institution doesn't exist to protect us, really, right? Ideally, we want to think that, think of it right, that way, right? When I say institution, I don't just mean the university. I mean the higher education as a whole. I mean, you know, um, the, uh, the regime as a whole, right? So it doesn't exist to protect us. So what you're feeling is perfectly normal. And um, I just wanted to say, and this is an advice. This is a piece of advice that was given to me, and I have always found it very helpful. So I'm hoping that the um, the audience here, the listeners of Undersong, will also find it helpful, especially on um, people who are minoritized. Right? The advice that was given to me was that if we ever feel like we're struggling within the institution, whether again whether it's a university or whatever, we need to remember that the institutions are not designed for us. They're never designed for us, right? They were designed, they were there for white people, right? For people who may be socioeconomically advanced, right? For people who come from a certain background, right? For native citizens, right? So the institution was never there to, um, it was never designed for us. So if we struggle, it's perfectly normal and okay that we struggle because we're supposed to, if if we're not supposed to fit into this um, white structure, right? So I can totally feel your frustration. And I will also want to say that you shouldn't feel like your efforts are not seen, right? Even if you feel like, you know, the institution isn't really responding to you. Again, it's not their, necessarily their job to respond, right? And I think this is um, what I'm trying to do with um, a lot of the different activities or different roles I've taken up, right? Um, within the institution. So for, and when I say within the institution, I mean University of Edinburgh, as well as, you know, higher education um, as a whole, right? So for example, I co-founded and I currently chair the staffing network at the University of Edinburgh. Um, through which we try to um, make the university um, focus on their anti-racist efforts, right? Because earlier we talked about how um, a lot of East Asians, for example, since the beginning of the pandemic has, have experienced um, um, physical violence, right? But we know that it's not just physical violence that East Asians are experiencing, right? It's, it's all different, it's violence that comes in all different shapes and forms, right? So it's not really, it really shouldn't be up to your your effort and your 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 friends and your colleagues' efforts, right, to make this university a better place, right? It really should um be an effort on um, institution. I shouldn't focus on just university because you know I'm also speaking about you know um society as an institution, the regime as an institution, right? It shouldn't be based on the minoritized um East Asians um efforts to to tackle racism, right? 
So institutions first really need to know, and this is through my work at this, um, through staffing network and also other activities and um, outside my university role as well, right? It's to recognize that racism exists. Um, that's only a step, first step, right? We need to recognize that racism exists at the institutional level. So by recognizing that, then we can change the structure, right? So just think about how many institutions, right? Again, including universities, including politicians, including all these civic organizations, how many of them have published an open letter that supported Black Lives Matter a year ago? right with a hashtag right they're all very like trendy right but are they just doing facebook activism or do they really care um about um black black lives lives right um so if we're talking about the university um as a um as as a unit of analysis right the questions that we need to ask is you know um have there been active recruitment of fame staff and students right um so the questions that we need to constantly ask is you know who sits on these hiring committees right uh, who is awarded scholarships, right? Because if we think about the perhaps the most immediate way to recruit um, 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 BAME students, for example, right? It's just to give them scholarship, right? To attract them to come here. But why are we not really talking about that as, in, as a solution, right? So, and then again, another um, thing could be um, workload and financial compensation, right? Ken said a lot of the work that you did was involuntary, right? And this is very similar for academic staff, right? Women of color or people of color academic staff. We do, a, we provide a lot of um, mentoring, which is often invisible and unrecognized, right? But what are the institutions doing? And again, it's not just about us being at university, right? It's about be, us being members of society, right? If you work at a company, if you work for a political party, right? I mean, all these um, institutions will want you to mentor other people, but what are they giving you in terms of financial compensation, right? How are they work at recognizing your workload, right? Because this is what essentially be extra work that you, you pick up, right? So it doesn't matter where you go after you graduate, right? Perhaps for our listeners, if you're students here, um, you graduate from the university, right? In your future workplace, if you're a minoritized body, you will be asked to do these kind of things, right? So what are the employers doing, right, to recognize that sort of efforts, right? And what exactly, you know, um, 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 are institutions doing to decolonize their themselves, right? Um, and um, also, I think perhaps more um, pertinent to, you know, the recent event, which is COVID-19, which is that, um, you know, a lot of firms, a lot of employers and universities have, you know, frozen promotion and pay increase, for example, right? And these cuts are actually the most harmful to people of color and especially a woman of color, right? So on the surface, it may seem like institutions, you know, have this like one blanket policy that's fair and equal to all because, you know, it treats everyone the same. But at the same time, we're not taking context and we're not taking color into consideration, right? But these are things that we need to ask, right? So I guess my long response to your and to my long response to what you're saying earlier today, Ken, is that you're not alone. And a lot of people are working on this together, right? It's it's never gonna be easy work. It's gonna be really hard, but we need to continue asking the hard questions. And most importantly, I think we need to continue um, doing everything we can to hold the institution accountable because it's never up to individuals to make things happen, to make changes happen. We we can only really make changes happen um, at a structural level in order for um, 
for um, for us to create an um, inclusive environment. What again, whether it's at a university or at a civic organization or at a political party or the, at or at a community. Yes, Nini, would you like to to comment something on that? Yes, please. Thank you, Katucha. I, I think Sarah has opened up a very important um, terrain for discussion on institutional racism just now. So I want to just take us uh, a deeper dive here. Um, so I, I think that, as Sarah said, Western institutions are white institutions. And I think that the issue with institutional racism here is that the practice of diversification and inclusion are only skin deep. That the deeper issue of racial prejudices, white privilege and oppression racialized others are barely addressed as the structural issues that Sarah spoke about. I think these issues tend to manifest in social relations, but they're often unacknowledged, un unaddressed, and often get attributed as the individual problem. And what I want to add to what Sarah has said is actually perhaps um, drawing something from my um, psychotherapeutic background. A very helpful concept here that I can think of from psychoanalysis on institutional racism is a concept that is called normative unconscious. Essentially, normative unconscious is about our innate craving for social cohesion and conformity. So we internalize norms and implicit rules as we observe them. The norms and rules that surround us in our day-to-day -day life. So in other words, we um, accept the common social practices as the norm. And even though at the conscious level, we question the values of these norms, but somehow at the unconscious level, we are still compelled to conform to these rules and to see those who deviate from these norms as problematic. I think this is a very helpful concept in thinking about institutional um, racism because um, we can see how sometimes um, the oppressed can become the oppressor or how you can raise, you can hold certain racial prejudices against people from the same ethnic background. Um, these are all helpful examples. And I also think the concept is particularly helpful at the institutional level when there's so much woke anti-racism going on. So for me, normative unconscious and how it is commonly um, at play or at work and how the, the woke anti-racism or people who claim to be anti-racist are not always your best um, allies because they are already very convinced that they are not racist, they cannot um, by any means be racist, and that somehow they missed opportunities to examine the tendency to enact on what has been internalized um, as the norms. So, for example, when you see um, a yellow woman being dismissed, being condescended to, her point not being taken on board, you also internalize these ways of addressing her, these ways of relating to her as part of the norm, because this is what you observe before your eyes. And when this happens, you are also compelled to do the same in relation to the yellow woman. And what's even more problematic is that because of the unconscious and um, the normative unconscious at work, you might even try 
to justify your behavior by thinking that the issue is purely caused by the person for for example, for not being assertive enough, for not doing enough, for you know not trying hard enough to win your respect. But deep down at the unconscious level, these difficulties can be the consequence of normative unconscious. It could be down to the institutional culture that's often unexamined. So you know we see how the issues are always seen or seen as caused by the minority group. One project I'm part of is the anti-racist curriculum project as part of the Higher Education Scotland. And my work uh, as part of the project, my work on reforming curriculum has led me to see that curriculum design should not be seen as an individual endeavor. So just because you're a woman of color, you know, your work should be all about racism and should be all about anti-racist um, curriculum. And I think that has been an issue. You know, much, much of this has been um, seen as the responsibility of individual staff because this is what your research is about. This is what you care about. Um, being on that project has led me to see that curriculum reform calls forth cultural reform of an institution. It calls forth an important mission for us to now look at what's really going on in terms of culture of an institution. The irony, the irony here is that we often encounter situations where, you know, the managers, the, the senior people, uh, people in power, and these are predominantly white people um, who really like the sound of um, anti-racist curriculum, right? Because it's the in thing. Um, however, they themselves, the same group of people, continue to sustain unfair discriminatory practices when it comes to who they promote, who they listen to, who they dismiss, and who they continue to shut down or marginalize. So the culture of the institution here should altogether be examined in terms of how well are we really doing here together in addressing the issue of racism. So my, my point is the whole matter of reforming curriculum thing at one level has somehow become the red herring um, for the managerial people, you know, the white people in power to distract attention from the real issues. So they don't actually need to think about their own issues, their own prejudices, their own normative unconscious, but they can just attribute issues to purely pedagogical that need to be addressed through curriculum reform. Oh, it's just a buzzword. <laughs> That's so true. Uh, that, that is so invalidating the work that we're trying to say, uh, that we're trying to do. And yeah, it's just a buzzword. It's, it's the, but also the, it, we are tokens of that buzzword, right? And it's very convenient. Anyway, um, I wanted to just to go back to our conversations regarding uh, as we address our truth as we as we find that uh, urgency to speak, we need to attend to self-care. So Sarah, would you like to say something about that? Sure, I just want to say a little bit about um, anger, which both Nini and Ken stressed earlier. Um, so we know the importance of anger, right? Because it's what sustains us um, in this movement, in this activism. At the same time, anger can also be exhausting, right? On the one hand, it can sustain us, but on the other hand, it can also be the reason why we want to leave, 
right? So I just want us to be all mindful of that. Um, I think what has helped me personally is that I've, I feel like I've found my group of people, right? You, you, you are all here. I feel like I've found my community here in Edinburgh. So I think, you know, finding people who sort of like share my um, ideologies and we share, you know, the sort of um, uh, the sense of um, collective activism that I'm also after, to me, that's really important. So I really appreciate that. So I just want us to remind all of us that, you know, it's while we feel angry, it's good. But at the same time, we also need to um, be mindful of how it could be mentally exhausting as well. And we should also always look after ourselves first before anyone else. I also want to add on something about the burnout in activist work because um, some of us might be like very vocal on social media and some other people might see us as like a like a somehow like very powerful individual but this can break the boundary between like the personal life and uh, the anti-racism anti work so like a lot of people, like some members of our group have like a lot of followers and uh, they they share a lot of things about uh, anti-East Asian racism. And uh, then there's a group of people, whenever they see something anti-East Asian, they repost that thing and uh, they direct message th those people. And this can be very, very emotional, like... Uh, sad and tired for them and uh, we also talk about uh, personal boundaries in our platform and uh, we hope people can be mindful about trigger warning or something like we are doing this kind of work but we're not like a thousand percent taking in every single thing and uh, some sometimes this kind of secondhand uh, like racism can also hurt people's feeling and traumatize people i feel like in our group the internalized racism is being um, reduced, but there is a lot of internalized fear. Like, because we know so many things about uh, in, in Edinburgh, in so many different perspectives of life, it's more and more difficult for us to step out and uh, like in, in our normal life, like we're brave to do, to, to, to represent our people. We're brave to do work, but it's like when we, as an individual, we feel vulnerable sometimes. And uh, one thing I really like uh, racism and mask as an individual is there are white allies in the group because normally people will feel like oh why you have white people in a in a in a like uh, anti-racism group uh, like they're not in the in the leadership position we're all very good friends their responsibility is to deal with online trolls like they understand how we think they understand our situation and at the same time we, we we don't know if this is a troll or if this is somebody that we can talk talk them through it so like it's it's, it's very bad for like a, a people of color to do this kind of thing but we have allies in our group and it is their job to do all the communications to do all the judgment because this will bring less emotional trauma to them so i think this is really good and another thing we're really sustaining our group is we recognize each other's um, vulnerability and we give each other permission to take time off like if if we, we we don't want to see social media for example for a few days then we we recognize it and uh, i think self-care and also care about other people in your community like 
we're we're strong together. We're doing a lot of like great work, but we are also at the same time vulnerable individuals. Thank you so much for your contributions. I think we could, yeah, have a, a coffee and cake and continue this conversation more and more. Uh, before I wrap up, I would like to ask you if you have any final thoughts. Uh, Nini, would you like to, to say a few words? I would like to contribute to the topic on self-care as well. Um, I, I think that part of the self-care or looking after ourselves um, is about being aware of the psychological cost of racism. You probably are expecting me to say that as someone who's um, in the field as a psychotherapist. And, you know, just now I talked about blaming myself when I'm made to feel like it's my own fault. Um, and, you know, feeling like I haven't worked hard enough when I have to work double as hard to get half as half as recognized as white people. So a, a part of the self-care is really about practicing acceptance of one's feelings and experiences. For example, recently I have become um, increasingly fed up with this whole tokenism thing that um, a lot of the time I'm asked if I want to be part of something because a certain group suddenly became interested in diversity. Um, and when this happens, I normally ask them to name a few of my works that they really like that make an impression to them. What is about me? And not just my skin color that you know really appeals to them that 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 that's valuable to them and when i see them struggle when i see them struggling to name something about me uniquely about me or my work i normally see that as an indicator that they are not interested in me but in my skin color or what i represent which is a woman of color that they need me to feel good about themselves so part of my self-care is to find my voice to deploy the energy of anger to say no and be clear about why and that's how I look after myself these days. Establishing boundaries I think it's very very strategical uh, as women uh, because we're expected to say yes to everything to be helpful to contribute to collaborate to be accessible and um, and these boundaries would require to say no in, in ways that is quite empowering. So, yeah, thank you for 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 this, and also all of you, all the experiences that you shared are also the contributions for one, the the strategies for us to protect ourselves when we are doing this anti-racist work, and two, I think he would already respond and be enough when I mentioned something about creating this positionality as an epistemological field to, to promote new knowledge, a new knowledge production. Because as we are talking about this, we are producing together and weaving together solidarity, uh, knowledge, and so many other strategies of solidarity and anti-racism. So thank you so much for, for bringing all your energy in this conversation. Um, I would like to wrap up mentioning something regarding how we dismantle racism, but as dismantle, I mean taking the mantle, uh, revealing racism, uh, but also dismantle in terms of destroying racism and building something new uh, for our future. And um, I believe that is an ongoing exercise, and I'm really inspired by Audre Lorde's words in 
her chapter, The Master's Tools Will Never Dismantle the Master's House, uh, when she ends uh, the chapter saying, and I read, quote, racism and homophobia and are real conditions for all our lives in this place and time. I urge each one of us here to reach down into that deep place of knowledge inside herself and touch that terror, that loathing of any difference that lives there, using the anger as well. See whose face it wears. Then the personal as the political can begin to illuminate all our choices. And I believe that is um, a beautiful thing to share, uh, well, actually to speak to what you already shared with us today and and think about how we are illuminating also other people who are listening and each other in this uh, virtual room in which we are that is um, quite honoring and humbling to be hosting the three of you today. So thank you for illuminating us with your experiences, your knowledges, your radical anti-racist positionalities. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thank you for having us.